Welcome to TheOpenWord.org, featuring the teaching ministries of Alan Schaefer. Currently, Alan is serving as an adjunct professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute, as well as leading almost weekly classes with his local church. With over 3,000 hours of recording since 1988, TheOpenWord.org contains theological studies, biblical surveys, homemade videos, and even small glimpses into Alan's personal life. We invite you to a source for verse-by-verse exposition of nearly the entire Holy Bible at TheOpenWord.org. Thank you. Today we begin a new series on TheOpenWord.org. In this series, which was originally taught in the year 2010, we'll be looking at the life of Christ. Today we're going to start by looking at the background of the New Testament to get an idea of the cultural and political setting of the New Testament. So join us today as we begin this exciting and new study on the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well let's get started. Father, thanks for tonight and for bringing us out to your house to study your word. And as we spend the next eight weeks looking at the life of Christ, I pray that you would challenge us and help us to see some things we'd never seen before and to get to know our Savior a little better. Thank you for the opportunity to study and to be here together. In Christ's name, amen. All right, the life of Christ. Um, What we're going to do the first week here is just a lot of background stuff. Um, Some of it's going to be a little bit of review maybe from last term, but hopefully we can go at it deeper maybe from a different perspective so you'll still get something out of it. And then next week we're going to start looking at the actual birth. We may get to it this week, but you know, the birth narrative, things like that. So with that in mind, let's take a look at the life of Christ. Um, one of the things, of course, that you're going to find as you study the New Testament is it's quite a bit different than the Old. <laughs> you know, you in the Old Testament, where's, where's Israel at the end of the Old Testament? Where are they? Captivity. Well, they're not in the Babylonian captivity, but they're... Oh, they're just rebuilding. Yeah, they're just returned to the land, right? I mean, they were in Babylonian captivity for a long period of time, and now they're just, they've just returned back to the land. Yes, just starting to rebuild the wall. We we have the wall rebuilt, of course, in Nehemiah. We have the temple being rebuilt in Ezra. We have the beginning of the second temple, the worship in the second temple. Um, but they're still, you know, reconstructing everything. And the Old Testament, of course, ends around 444 B.C. That's about the last time God speaks, all right? And he doesn't speak at all then until John shows up. The apostle, the, the, not the Apostle John, but John the Baptist shows up. So we have the, what we call the 400 silent years. And the thing is, in those 400 silent years, there's a lot of stuff going on that forms the background of what we see in the New Testament. We have the idea that somehow things just popped into existence, but for example, at the end of the Old Testament, there's no such thing as the Pharisee, a Sadducee. You know, we don't have any of that stuff. And now all of a sudden in the New Testament, here's all of these groups, all these people, um, all these different sects. Where do they come from? What are they up to? What's their background? And so that's what we want to look at here a little bit. And we're going to work off these notes here and just fill in 
a little bit of the 400 um, silent years. When we look at that time period, um, what really shaped Israel was the captivity, of course. They went into captivity right around 605 B.C., give or take. Um, this was the Babylonian captivity. And if you remember, how many deportations were there? Three. Three. 606, 598, and 586. All right. Um, 606 was basically Nebuchadnezzar taking the best of the best. That was Daniel and his friends, most likely. Um, he came back in 598, took a few more into captivity, and set up Zedekiah, or actually 598, set up Zedekiah as the puppet king. Zedekiah was the last king of Israel who ruled for 12 years until he rebelled against Babylon and was captured by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, his eyes were put out. He was blinded. After seeing his son slaughtered in front of him, Nebuchadnezzar killed his sons, then put his eyes out and carried him off into Babylonia where he died in captivity. And that was the end of the Israelite state. And then what the king of Babylon did was put a governor in charge of Israel at that time. Um, the walls were destroyed. The temple was destroyed. Uh, the treasures were carried off. And uh, Israel ceased being a sovereign, independent nation at that point until 1948. So they were, this was the time of the Gentiles. And uh, of course, Babylonian ruled for about 70 years. All right, you'll notice there, 605 to 539, you say, well, that's, that's uh, you know, it's about 70 years, give or take. And um, why is that important? Well, what did God tell Israel was going to happen to them? How long were they going to be in captivity? 70 years. Why? Where did the 70 come from? No. Wasn't it like there was a, I might have this wrong, um, wasn't it like there was like one of Daniel's prophecies that was like a really like exact time? And like... No, that's not it. There's 70 weeks that comes from the 70 years. But Jeremiah prophesied Israel was going to be in captivity 70 years. Well, what was one of the requirements of the law? What happened every seven years? No, that was every 50. Pretty close. Every seven years was a Sabbath for what? For the land. For the land. And what had happened is Israel had violated the land Sabbath for 490 years. So what God says, I'll give them a land Sabbath. I'll give the land a Sabbath rest. I'll put you into captivity. So the 70 years came from that. The seven years, is that where they return the land to their owners? Or no, that was the year Jubilee. Okay. Every seven years, every seven years, the land was to remain fallow. You're not to plant anything. Every seventh year. Then every seven sevens, or 49, the 50th year was the year of Jubilees, where you would, you know, forgive all debts, land would go back to its original owners, that kind of thing. All right, that was part of the nation of Israel. But Babylon ruled, and, and they were the head of gold. We remember that from Daniel, the head of gold. They ruled for 70 years. And then the next kingdom that came along was the Medo-Persian Empire. These were two kingdoms that really merged together, the Medes and the Persians. And uh, they captured the city of Babylon in 539, 
538. Um, Cyrus the Great is the one who captured Babylon, and the way he did that is he dammed up the Euphrates River. The Euphrates River ran underneath the wall of Babylon. That's how they were got the water supplies. So they had a city that was built over this river, but what he did is he dammed up the river and the city water, the water fell and he marched through on the dry riverbed. And then he came up inside and somebody forgot to lock this, the river gates. So he walked right into the city and took over the city without ever putting a siege to it. And uh, we find that in Daniel when it says Belshazzar that night he was slain. Um, we have the great Mini Mini Tiko Ufarsan prophecy. Um, and so Medo-Persia took over and they basically ruled until Alexander the Great. Um, we have five major kings. Now there are, there are some minor kings in there. But the five major kings are Cyrus the Great, Cambyses, Darius the Great, Xerxes, and Artaxerxes. And later on there's a Darius Hystapses. You know, there's, there's two Dariuses, actually. Um, Xerxes was the king of Esther in the book of Esther. Um, and Artaxerxes was the king in Nehemiah, under Nehemiah. All right? And Artaxerxes is the one that actually allowed Israel to go back and begin the rebuilding of the wall. And that happened around 444 B.C. All right? Um... Really, that the time of the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament revelation ended shortly after the decree to go back and rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. Um, most date Malachi somewhere around 536 or 436, somewhere around in there. Um, so it's pretty close to that time when God um, really became silent. Zechariah and Malachi were the last really prophets of the Old Testament time. And then what you have is the Greek Empire. This is interesting. You see outlines of this in the book of Daniel. And who was the great king of, Ale of um, Greece? Well, it was Alexander the Great. Uh, Alexander the Great came on the scene and by 333 B.C. had conquered most of the known world. He had overthrown the Medo-Persian Empire. And... Um, Unfortunately, he didn't have an heir when he died. He died very young. He had one really imbecilic son that was killed shortly after his death. Um, and it was split into four parts. The, the Greek Empire was split into four pieces um, mass, uh, with his four generals, Lysimachus, Antigonus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus are the ones that took the kingdom. They sort of split it apart into these four geographical areas, all right? Um, the Greek Empire slowly decayed. It was never really conquered. It just was slowly decayed and was absorbed by Rome, who came to really world dominance somewhere around 63 B.C. Now, there are some things that came out of the Greek um, time period that's very important to the background of the New Testament. Some very important things happened during that time, all right? Um, one of the things that happened during that time was the rise of the synagogue. All right, we have the rise of the synagogue. Um, 
Why was that necessary? Well, the Jews had been scattered around all over the place. And uh, so in order for them to have some kind of semblance or some um, continuity with their people, we have the rise of the synagogue. This is a place where the Jews would congregate. They would teach the law. They would hear the law proclaimed. They would read the Torah. They would be preached to. So this happened during that time because when we start the New Testament, what do we see? We see synagogues all over the place. In the Old Testament, where did Israel go to worship? Jerusalem, the temple. There was no temple. There was no Jerusalem to go worship in. All right. So you have the rise of the synagogue during this time. All right. Also during this time, as a result of the Greek empire, all right, you have this great push of something called Hellenization. Hellenization. What is that? Well, it comes from the Greek word Helene, which means Greece. All right. And the idea of Hellenization was Alexander the Great wanted to create, wanted to do some things with the Greek. What he wanted to do is he wanted to bring Greek culture the world over. All right, he wanted to unify the kingdom. Because back in those days, how did you unify a kingdom? How did you keep your kingdom together? Well, you had to have something that, some commonality, all right, to hold it together. And what Alexander the Great wanted to do is he wanted to bring the Greek culture to all of the world, the barbarians, so to speak. He wanted to bring them into the Greek culture, all right? And we're going to talk about that again in a minute here. He also wanted to bring a common language, and that was the language of what? Greek, all right? So when the New Testament period begins, most scribes, scholars, Pharisees, all, whatever, were multilingual, all right? They could speak Aramaic and Hebrew. Actually, the, the, the common language was Aramaic. The religious language was Hebrew, sort of like Latin. Think of Latin in the Roman Catholic Church. The common person, most of the time, didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Aramaic. And there was Greek. And most people could write Greek. Most scholars could write in the Greek language. Because one of the things that Alexander did, the Great did, was bring this language over the known world. Yeah, right? Um, so, like, so the Hebrew, like most people didn't speak it, was it kind of like set up, the synagogue set up where like the common man wouldn't have been able to like, like I know they obviously didn't like have Bibles and stuff like that. Your school. The, the common like, person. The common man would have been able to read like the Old Testament. Well, most people that. didn't read at all. You had to be taught to read. It was rare to have yeah, somebody yeah, read. Or like I had it spoken to. Like if, right. If you wanted to like know anything about like the Torah, mm -hmm. you'd have to go to the synagogue. Like you couldn't. Yeah. Like even like even like they wasn't spoken. Like if right. The common language of the day was Aramaic. Christ probably spoke Aramaic. So it'd be like today. It'd be like if it's a church that like does their like like their readings in Latin. Yeah. Like no one in America speaks. Latin. And not not quite as bad as that, but close to that. Yeah, not quite as so bad be, as that. So it would be like teaching like a class in like mm -hmm. French. And, and Hebrew and Latin are, yeah, Hebrew and Latin. Hebrew and Aramaic are close. They're cognate languages. All right. So you could sort of make out some of the language. But it was not the common spoken language of the day. Aramaic was the common spoken language. And, of course, Latin was another language. Paul was an expert in Latin, Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. He could speak all four of those. All right. 
But what he done, he brought language. And one of the ways he did this language, all right, is the, um, the great libraries. We remember the libraries at Alexandria and Antioch of Syria. And there was another one, I can't remember where it is. But he established these massive Greek libraries. And what he did is he collected all kinds of works into these libraries. That was part of the process. And as part of that, just, just as an aside, that's where we get the Septuagint because that was one of the things that they brought in and collected in the great Greek libraries. But he established these Greek libraries all over. And probably the most famous one is the library in Alexandria, Egypt. All right. Um, but he wanted to bring a common language. Okay. Um, the other thing is they've tried to bring in a common religion. What is the Greek religion characterized by? Well, polytheism, right? You got Zeus and all those other things. So throughout the known world, that was really pushed. Now, when the Romans came along, they just renamed some of the gods. So Zeus became Jupiter and things like that. But they were the same, it was basically the same god, same religion, same kind of thinking, all right? I, I guess I never realized mythology was ever a true religion. Or a well, they, they worshipped Zeus. I mean, if, if you remember, um, what is the church in Revelation where it says they sit where Satan's throne is? There was a large temple to Zeus there and had a big temple of Zeus up on, or a big statue of Zeus up on the cliff. You know, and then um, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Remember that? They worshipped Artemis or Diana in Ephesus. I mean, this was big business, you know, um, these gods. Asclepius was another one. That was the god of healing. That was in Ephesus. I think it was in Ephesus. We had a, a temple to the god Asclepius. Um, so so this, this, this permeated the culture, the, you know, the, the, the worldview of the person of that time. One of the things that he did with culture here, of course, in, in this, in mainly culture and, and religion, is the um, really trying to stamp out Judaism as, an, as a, separate ident a separate identity. Um, culture, they, they would do, one of the things they imported was their games. Their gymnasium. Remember the gymnasium? And um, gymnasium. And, uh, you know, we don't think anything of that. Well, yeah, I'm good to have a gym next door, you know. Well, in the Greek culture, um, you participated stark naked in the gymnasium. And, uh, of course, that would freak out the Jewish people, right? But what you have is you have this push for Hellenization to try and homogenize the world, to try and bring it all under one culture, one religion, one language. And it really came to a head um, in the intertestamental time under the guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Um, Antiochus IV and Teochus IV, or as he's known, Epiphanes. Now, Epiphanes means madman. Epiphanes. Epiphanes means madman. He wanted to be named Epimenes, which is a great one. Uh, but they named him Epiphanes. And uh, what Antiochus IV basically did is um, he tried to force 
Greek religion and culture on Israel. For example, he, and by the way, he was the king. Think of this. Here's Jerusalem. All right, I can't draw anything. Here's Jerusalem. Okay? And down here, you have the Ptolemaic Empire. Okay? That's in Egypt. Okay? Remember, Ptolemy took over Egypt. So you have like Ptolemy the Fourth, Ptolemy the Seventh, all of that kind of stuff. And then up here in Assyria, you have Seleucus or the Seleucid dynasty. Okay? Who's in the middle? Israel. So what happened is he'd fight this guy, this guy'd fight that guy, and who's in the middle? Jerusalem. All right? Always in the middle of it. And the problem is Epiphanes, what he wanted to do is he wanted to come down and he wanted to take over the Ptolemaic Empire. All right? Now you're going to see a blow-by-blow, blow, and if you go out and look at my intertestamental history, it gives a blow-by-blow blow account of the wars between these two folks. Um, but basically, the, the, the upshot is he wanted to take over down here, and uh, he wasn't able to, so when he was coming back, he took out his frustration on Jerusalem, on Israel. And one of the things he did, for example, is he sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. Now, that was an unclean animal, right? So sacrificing a pig was bad news. He sacrificed a pig. Um, he forbade circumcision. You're not allowed to circumcise your children. You're not allowed to read the Torah. You were not allowed to observe the Sabbath. I mean, he really passed all these laws to really eradicate Judaism. And historically, it says that a woman, one, of the, one woman had her sons circumcised, and he slaughtered her along with her kids in the public town square because she had her children circumcised. Um, this guy was bad news. He was really bad bananas. Um, what they would do is they would go into a town, they would offer a pig, and force the Jews to eat the pig. And if you didn't eat the pig, you were killed. I mean, that's, that's how bad he was. And what he then becomes is a picture of the Antichrist. Um, from Daniel chapter 9, Daniel 11, this man becomes a great picture of the Antichrist because what is the Antichrist going to do at the end time? He's going to desecrate the temple. You see that in Matthew chapter um, 25, 24 and 25. All right? But what happened during this time under Greece is there's this great push for Hellenization. And that was such that even though the Greek Empire became in decline, as Rome became powerful, the influence lived on. So in Christ's time, when the New Testament was being written, what language did they use? The Greek language. Because the Greek language was just the common known language of that day. They did not use Latin, they used Greek. And that came from this here. Also, what happened is as a backlash against Antiochus Epiphanes, one of the things that happened is you had what I would call, let's call it here, the purging of idolatry from Israel. Purging of idolatry. What was Israel's greatest problem prior to the conquest, or prior to their, their idolatry. idolatry? I mean, the they, they had constant problems with Baal and Ashtaroth and you name it. They were always off doing what? Always off. As soon as they were yeah. out, as soon as they were out of Egypt, first thing they do, golden calf. Yeah. 
there had constant problems with idolatry. So what happened during this time is you have the purging of idolatry. If the, if the captivity did anything, it got rid of the idolaters. Because when it comes to Christ's time, what one problem did they not have? They weren't worshiping other gods. They, they were worshiping the right God. Now they got, the way was fouled up. But at least they got the right God. At least they were not off worshiping the gods of Rome and the gods of all the pagan countries around them. They were able to purge this idolatry from them. All right? So, what's really important to understand during this Greek time frame is you have the rise of um, the synagogue, the purging of idolatry. You have this concept of Hellenization. And really, that, that came to a head right around 150 B.C., not too long before the New Testament time. And what you have is Rome is a rising power at that time. They're starting to become a rising power during that time. All right. Um, again, it was never destroyed. It was just slowly decayed and just became part of Rome. Now, where did Rome come in? Well, Rome really became the power right around A.D., or not A.D., but B.C. 63, somewhere around in there. That's really where Rome began to exert its influence over Palestine. And the way this is, is during that time we have, and you're going to read about this at some point, the Hasmonean. Hasmonean. And uh, right around 150, as when they were able to finally overthrow the influence of Antiochus IV and Antiochus Epiphanes, we have the rise of the Hasmonean dynasty, which was about the closest Israel came to true independence from you know, the time they went into Babylon to 1948. This is about as close as they would ever come to independence. And uh, this was led by a man named John Hyrcanus, who was the leader. And he appealed to Rome for help. He appealed to Rome to solidify his power. And what you see there is you see Rome becoming what? A greater influence, a greater power. Until right around 63... Um, B.C., Rome then exerted really its great dominance over Israel. And basically, Rome then began to pull the strings and not the Hasmonean dynasty. Rome basically took over. All right. And that is just, that is right, right, um, right around the time, or just before the time of Christ's birth. All right. And that's what I'm doing here. All right, that's what I'm, that's that's this slide here. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes. This is the forced Hellenization. Now, where do you read this? Well, if you get the Apocrypha out, the Book of First and Second Maccabees talks about this, gives us a history here. All right, um, and it says about 164 B.C. Israel won its sort of independence. Um, they weren't totally a free nation, but they had some level of autonomy. And that lasted until A.D. 37 when Herod the Great was given rulership over Palestine by Rome. Herod the Great was interesting because he took the right side in the battle between um, with uh, Cleopatra, if you remember. He took the right side. And because of that, Rome rewarded him by naming him king. All right? No, it was in Rome. 
Yeah, it would be Rome. Okay. Where's Rome? Rome is often in the Greek boot. Part way up. Not the Greek boot, the Italy boot. Part way up. You probably got a different map. Yeah. Okay. Um, and that's that's really the, the the background of the New Testament begins really with the Herodian dynasty. Herod the Great, uh, his father was Antipater II. Um, he was given direct rule of Judea by Roman 40 BC. Why? Because he was loyal to Julius Caesar. And as such, he was given as a reward for choosing the right side in the Civil War. He was given rulership of Palestine, um, Judea area, called Herod the Great. He was an Idumean. Um, he was a descendant of Esau. Now, how do you think that went over with the Jews? Not well at all. He was hated. I mean, from the get-go, he was hated by the Jews. Now, let's understand something about Herod. Herod was a bad banana. Okay? He really was. He was not a nice guy. Um, one of the sayings in that time was, it's better to be Herod's pig than Herod's son. You're better off being his pig than his son. That's how bad he was. Um, he was paranoid beyond paranoid. Um, he always believed somebody was out to get him, to depose him, to take his life. Um, so if he even suspected you of being against him, he would have you killed. I mean, he was that paranoid uh, a ruler. He had um, one of his wives, Mariamne, killed, and he was haunted by her death till he died. Um, one of his sons, he had his sons killed, whom he thought was trying to usurp the throne. I mean, the guy was really really a mess. But he did do one thing. He had these massive building projects. He built, for example, um, Masada. That was one of the forts. He built the Herodian, Herodium, which is a large, the Fortress Antonia there in Jerusalem. Um, he ma had a massive building project to beautify the temple and really made te the temple, the Israelite temple, one of the great wonders of that world. He built massive aqueducts. Um, I think he also did uh, Caesarea Philippi. I mean, this guy was a massive builder. If anything, he put Israel to work on his building projects. Um, I think it was actually the Men's Walkworthy Conference movie, and one of the speakers was talking, for some reason he was talking about Herod, and he was saying how like every time Herod had built something, almost all the blocks Herod built with had his like symbol with Herod's mm -hmm. symbol on it. And like so, everywhere you went, if it was like in like Herod City, everything had like his lo every block of everything he built had his logo on it. So like you'd be like walking through the city, be like Herod, Herod, it's like having a Nike switch on yeah. every thing you saw. Yeah. Well, he, he, you know, he, to his credit, he he did do some good things for Israel, but because of his race and because of his abject paranoia, he was hated by Israel. Now. What does this help you understand a little bit? Knowing this guy was paranoid out, off the charts, what, is that, what does that help you understand a little bit? About the life of Christ. The things got stirred up in Jerusalem. Well, Herod died just shortly after Christ was born, Herod the Great. But what do you see about Herod the Great? 
What does that help you understand a little bit of? Who came to visit Christ when he was about two? The wise man. The wise man. Where did they go? Well, they first went to him. Well, why would they go to him? Because that's probably the logical place to find the king. Find the king of the Jews, you go to the king. I mean, I would, right? Except what kind of person was Herod? Paranoid. Now, this guy has one foot in the grave and another foot on the banana peel. And he's worried about somebody usurping his throne. Okay, he actually dies about a, you know, shortly after the, the visit of the wise men. Not too long after that. But uh, what does he want the wise men to do? He wants them to find out where this king is so that he may do what? Come and worship him? Kill him. That was, that was the only thing on his mind was to kill Jesus. And when he was schnookered, how did he, how did he try to solve the problem? Kill all of the kids, and I'll sure to get the right one. That's how bad this guy was. You got to understand, this guy was evil. This guy made Bin Laden look like a Boy Scout. All right, this guy was really bad, and he was hated, just absolutely hated. I'm trying to think if he was the one. I might be wrong on this, but if I remember correctly, he was the one that he had orders that when he died, he wanted 70 leading Jerusalem leaders to be killed along with him so somebody would mourn on his day of death. That's how bad this guy was. He was not a nice guy. All right. Some of that been a throwback to his heritage with Esau losing his birthright. Some family history there might we don't know what, what it... The, the problem is it wasn't just him against the Jews. It was him, period. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it was not like he's trying to get back at the Jews. His sons, I mean, anybody. It, wasn't, it didn't matter whether you were Jew or not. Um, this guy was just absolutely paranoid. The Midianites. Yeah, wasn't it the Midianites? I think it was. That um, he stayed with. Like, yeah. The time between him exiting a prince of Egypt and coming back. Right. He was staying with the Midianites. But but Herod was not a nice guy. He was really bad. When did he die? He died about four B.C. Um, just after the birth of Christ. Um, after his death, the empire was divided up against between his three sons. Now his sons tried to go and get themselves proclaimed king. But Rome wouldn't do it. Rome wouldn't proclaim them king. All right. Where did Herod get his title? He got it conferred on him by Rome. Okay. But we had three sons. He had Archelaus the Ethnarch. This guy was like his dad, really a bad, bad banana. In fact, he was so bad that Rome finally deposed him after 10 years. They said, look, you're even making us look bad. Um, he was taken under, taken out of the picture, and Rome, and then Judea was put under Roman procurators, one of which was Pilate. This is where Pilate comes from. So where Judea was originally overseen by Herod, and what Rome basically told Herod, said, look, you run things, give us the taxes, we'll make you king, you run things, and that's, that's basically the way it operated. Right. When Herod died, of course, this kingdom got split up and 
Archelaus was so bad that they had to get him out and put in a series of procurators in charge of, excuse me, in charge of Judea. Then there's Philip the Tetrarch. He was put over Itcherea and Trachonitis. That's northern Palestine area. Um, he ruled until about A.D. 34, at which time Rome took over direct rule of his lands, of the lands which was, he was a ruler. So basically they got absorbed into the procuratorship. All right. Um, what do you know about Philip? Well, he plays a little bit in the death of Herod the Great. Not Herod the Great, John the Baptist. All right. And then Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch, he was put over Galilee and Perea. That's the area across the Jordan River. Okay. Christ called him a fox. And this was the Herod that had John beheaded, Herod Antipas. All right. Um, but the Herodians were a bad dynasty. Why did Herod Antipas have John put into prison? What did John say? It's not lawful for you to do what? Have Philip, your brother's wife. So that's where Philip and Antipas come into play. All right. What about Herod's grandchildren? You know, you read about the, the sins of the father being visited under the children of the third and fourth generation. You start seeing that. Well, what about his grandkids? Well, we have Herod Agrippa I. Who's Herod Agrippa I? Um, he ruled all the lands formerly ruled by Herod the Great. He was loved by the Jews because he tried to live according to the law. I mean, he tried to be a good Jew. I mean, he actually tried to, to live, you know, as, as a Jew. Um, he wanted to ingratiate himself with the Jews, so what did he do? He had James killed, and who else was he going to kill? Peter, right? Peter got let out of prison. And why did he die? Well, he died suddenly because of pride at the age of 54. What did he do? He had a all hell Herod day, and he got up and he had, sil had a silver robe on, and people thought he was a god speaking. And God said, I've had it with that. So he was struck with worms and died. And we are told from um, secular history that he had a, um, a bad infection that he stank. I mean, he was, it was really a gross person. And he, he was actually had a massive worm infestation and died because of that. Um, God killed him. And then it's interesting, uh, you got Herodias. Who's she? Well, she was the wife of Philip and later Antipas. He's, she's the one. Now, you say, well, wait, no, okay, wait, wait, wait. Herodias is Herod the Great's granddaughter. Philip and Antipas are his sons. W what's going on here? Incest. Yeah, that's what you got going on there, incest. And also, you got to understand, they didn't, they, these people didn't have the same mothers. They were step-siblings, all right? But Herodias was just as bad as her father. And um, she had originally married Philip, and then she was married to Antipas. And when John told him that was wrong, she uh, became very upset about that, didn't she? And so what did she have done? She told her daughter that she to ask Herod 
Antipas for John's head on a platter. Yeah, yeah. Which shows the debauchery of this, where this woman would allow her daughter to basically dance naked in front of Herod and all the people there to get John the Baptist. Right. I mean, the guy was, and all she wanted was the head of John the Baptist, so. I'm sure there's a very hot place in hell for them right now. Um, bad people, really bad to the bone. And then there's some great grandkids that Herod had out there. Um, we have Herod Agrippa II. Uh, he ruled over the lands formerly ruled by Herod the Great, with the exception of Judea. And it was this Herod that Paul almost persuaded to be a believer. Almost you persuade me to be a believer, almost. That's probably one of the saddest statements in the New Testament, almost, but lost. Um, and then there's Bernice and Drusilla. Bernice was the daughter of Agrippa I, and Drusilla married Felix, the procurator of Judea. So when, so when you remember you had Felix and Agrippa there in, in the end of Acts and Festus, well, Felix actually was the, the brother-in-law of Agrippa II. All right, he was uh, actually related there. Why is this important? This is important because the Herods, the ruling family of the Herods, really lend a significant amount of influence and color over the New Testament, over the life of Christ. Um, we read, for example, that Herod and Pilate were at odds until when? Until the trials of Christ, right? And then became friends after that. And remember, Christ went over to Herod and didn't have anything to say to Herod. Herod wanted to see him do a miracle, do a trick, perform a miracle. People that were just totally lost to the nth degree. But one of the mistakes, for you know, I mention this because one of the mistakes that some people make is they see Herod and they think it's the same guy. Herod is a family name. You've got to say, which Herod? There's Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa II, Herod Antipas. Which Herod is it? Um, but they're all bad. So that's the Herods. What about the religious sects that came, up, came around? Well, during the intertestamental time, you have the rise of these groups of people. We have... Um, you know, when you open up the New Testament, Christ immediately starts having, or starts butting heads with the Pharisees. And you have the Sadducees and all of that. Well, who are they? Well, we don't know where the Pharisees came from, but possibly the root word, Parsi, means to separate. Because what did the Pharisees do? Well, they separated themselves from everything. They, they were the, the Pharisees were the ultra-conservative. I mean, they spent all day long arguing about the law, about the law of God. They're the ones that came up with all the Sabbath rules, remember? They're the ones that added to the law. They're the ones that violated the law by saying it is a gift that Christ accused them of. They were very much in the external show. Internal reality was really nothing. It's just what did you look like on the outside? How did you present yourself? Um, we first find the mention on the reign of John Hyrcanus around 135 to 105 B.C. That's the first time this name pops up. 
they weren't probably a large group. There wasn't a lot of these guys. Now, why weren't there a lot of them? Pretty strict. They're extremely strict, but what else about them? Pardon? Were they celibate? No, they weren't celibate. The Essenes were pretty... Yeah, they weren't celibate. Well, what did they devote their lives to doing? Study. Studying the law. So how did they live? I mean, if all of Israel was into studying the law, who would raise the crops? So, I mean, it wasn't a lot of these guys. They were teachers, they, but they were very influential. They, they really had a significant influence on the day-to-day -day life of Israel. You know, they're, they're the ones... Think of them like if you if you read about Afghanistan before the you know before the fall of the Taliban we had the Taliban police going around and you know if, if a woman was in public and wasn't veiled they she get beat up I mean that's that's what these guys did they just went around all day long trying to find some violation of their minute little laws that they wanted to try and impose on people and they of course pat themselves on the back because they were godlier than anybody else mainly made up of middle-class people. You didn't have a lot of wealthy Pharisees. You had one or two, but they're mostly the middle-of-the-road kind of guys, middle-class. Um, they did accept all the Old Testament of Scripture, so the Mosaic Law, the Old Testament prophets, history books, they all accepted that as Scripture. Now, one of the things about Pharisees, when we look at the Pharisees, we think they're, they're all bad. But there were some good Pharisees. I mean, there were some guys that really tried or wanted, right, to worship God the right way. The problem is what had happened over the intertestamental time is that Judaism had morphed into something that was not Judaism. It had morphed into something that wasn't what God originally intended it to be. It morphed into this works righteousness kind of thing. Now, do we have that same problem today? Yeah. There are churches that sort of have a, an undercurrent of this works righteousness kind of thing. Um, Ultra-legalistic churches where, you know, if you go in and you don't use the right Bible version, you don't wear the right clothes, you don't have your hair cut a certain length, you're horrible. You're to be evicted. You're to be thrown out. Um, we have that today. But these were very, they were very strict, very legalistic. Um, they're the ones that wrote the Talmud, the Gemara, and the Gemara, the, the really the concordance, or not the, the commentaries on the law. They would sit around all day and argue about legal issues. Um, two prominent groups were the Hillel and Shammai. These are two prominent Pharisees that had different views. One was a very conservative, one was somewhat liberal. Um, they would argue about the law all of the time. And always tried to trip Christ up because he wasn't one of them. Um, you know, they, they looked down on people in the land. They called them Ha'aretz, the people of the land. And they would avoid them. Uh, the Pharisees even said it's, it's not lawful to go near a Gentile even to teach them the law. Uh, they were very, you want to call it, misogamist in the sense that they believed a woman... If a woman learned the law, that was okay. If she didn't, that was okay. It's completely irrelevant whether a woman learned the law or not. Totally irrelevant. And in fact, they woke up, and when they woke up, they would say, thank God, one of their prayers in the morning was, I thank God that I'm not 
a Jew. Um, I'm not a Gentile. I'm not something else. I'm not a woman. I mean, that's that's their prayer. Thank God I'm not a woman. Um, and that's what Christ ran into when he was dealing with these guys. Were they uh, educated? Yeah. yeah. Highly educated. I mean, they were the doctors and the lawyers of the day. I mean, when it talks about in the law, the lawyers stood up and asked him. These guys were smart. They could write. They could read. Um, they were the teachers of the law. They were the ones that taught in the synagogues. Um, Rabbis. rabbis, yeah. Gamaliel was one. Paul was one of these. I mean, Paul would have been probably the most brilliant man of his time. The guy was brilliant, beyond brilliant. Just a, a very smart man. Right. Now, like, would, now, like, some say, like, learn about the law and stuff like that. Like, um, I know that they wouldn't all have been any guys, because I know, like, Paul wasn't. But like, would most of them have been Levites? No. Because of like, like how, like, is there any connection there? No. They would have been all from all the tribes. Were there some that were Levites? Yeah, but they were fairly from all of the tribes. All right. It, it, there was just there's probably about five thousand of these guys. It wasn't a lot of them. But they were. Let's stop and think about. It. They were the intelligentsia. They were the hoi polloi of the day. They were the you know the ones that everybody looked up to. They were the ones that everybody respected. Um, think about the way they, they wanted to be called doctor, doctor in the marketplace. They wanted the prominent places at the feast. You know, they wanted everybody to know who they were. And it, they paraded their religiosity around so that you could pick them out of a crowd. They enlarged their tassels. What is that? Well, in the Old Testament law, you would have a tassel on your robe, but they made really big, long ones so that everybody would know that they were more pious. Um, they wore their phylacteries. What was that? That was a little leather box that they would attach to their hand and their forehead that had scraps of verses in it. And so they would write a verse and they would put it in their little box and they would tie this leather box to their hand a certain way. And they would tie a leather box to their head a certain way so that everybody knew that these guys were Pharisees. When they fasted, they made themselves look sort of a little bit wasted so that people would see how deprived they were of their religiosity. They uh, they sounded the trumpet when they gave their offering. Everything was done for show. Everything was done for externals. Yeah, it was. They, uh, on the outside, they didn't look on the inside. Not at all. What you thought on the inside was irrelevant to them. It's what you look like on the outside. That's how well you looked on the outside. And that's what Christ said. He says, you know, you guys do a lot of work making the outside of the cup look really good, but inside is all kinds of filthiness and excess. You look really good on the outside because you look like a whitewashed tomb and that, but inside you're full of rotting bones. Um, it, they were all on the exterior. Now you look at the Orthodox Jew today, and, you know, you get this picture of this black-suited dude with the, some kind of a brim hat on with the curls on the... Now, is, is some of that a throwback to some of the stuff yeah. they did in those days? Yeah. The ultra-legalistic Hasidic Jews are like that. And again, I, I had one I worked with that, um, you know, we had our our um, group picnic. He, he couldn't come because he might eat food that was cut by a knife that might have touched a piece of pork in an earlier time and he would be defiled. And I asked him, I said, you really think God's up there trying to track all of that? 
And he said, yeah. I really do. I think God's up there tracking all of that. I mean, they're very, they're very fastidious. And remember, you know, what he says, uh, I mean, a good picture of this, we, we think Christ is exaggerating when he talks about, you know, the, in the account of the Pharisee and the publican that go down to the temple to pray. And we think, oh, you know, he's maybe overstating it. No, that's how they prayed. I thank God that I'm not like that guy over there. What do I do? I give tithes. I fast twice a day. I do this, I do this, I do this. Their concept is what God owed them. God owes me. Because I do this stuff, God owes me. That was their mentality. Had nothing to do with the relationship. It had everything to do with what they did. You can know all the stuff in the world. You can take all the classes, do all the studying in the world, but if you don't have the relationship, you totally miss the mark. That's right. Yeah. Well said. I like, I like what Vance Havner says. You know, you can dot all your I's and cross all your T's and still spell the word wrong. Um, Honey, it says in Jeremiah 17, 9, that man looketh on the outward appearance of the Lord looks on you. Oh. Yeah, the heart is deceitful. And um, God sees the inside. And that's really, and we're going to look at that in, in our sessions coming up, but the great fight Christ had with the Pharisees was, he says, you guys got all the wrong, you got the wrong gauge of spirituality. You guys are all looking at the outside. You think because you do this and you do that and you wear the right robe and you, you don't walk so far on a Sabbath day and you don't write a letter on a Sabbath day and you, that, that somehow God owes you. God's under obligation to you. And what that does, it misses the whole point of the relationship. And you're right, Ryan. They missed the relationship. They did not see the necessity of a relationship. To them, God was the celestial scorekeeper. And they were helping him try to keep the score. And as long as their balance sheet in their mind was positive, they were okay. It was like kind of the same way like a like the Catholic Church, at least in some areas, looked at it like like they would call Christ the uh, I heard one of my Catholic friends said they called Christ the most perfect, it was like the most perfect lawgiver or something like that. The most mm -hmm. perfect uh, it was like something it was something like the most perfect judiciary, the most perfect lawgiver or something like that. Well Catholicism has some of this in it because is Catholicism based on a relationship? No. It's based on ritual. What do you do? As long as you go to Mass, do your Hail Marys, whatever it is, as long as you follow what the church tells you to do in the Day of Judgment, you're okay. Now look at Ted Kennedy, Catholic. Is he in heaven? I'm not going to put a dollar on it. There's nothing in his life that would ever tell me that he had any connection to Christ. But now what does the Catholic Church say? He's got a high mass. He's got a high mass. He's in. He might have got one of those uh, plenary indulgences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not about that. It's about a relationship. The Pharisees missed that. Um, they did have several fundamental beliefs. I mean, they, they were close. God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They certainly believed that God was sovereign and in charge over all things. 
They believe that we were responsible for certain things. And by the way, do we believe that? Sure we do. I believe God is sovereign in salvation, but that doesn't mean I can just sit back and just wait for it to happen. There's some things i got to do. There's a guy I work with, just on that uh, idea, there's a guy I work with, he's, uh, he was like brought up Lutheran, but he's totally like, he like he's the kind of guy, he like he knows I like talking with people and trying to spread the word and stuff, but he's the kind of guy, he, like, he brings up stuff just to try and push my buttons and get me uh, like a fight with him. I've not gotten angry with him like, yet, but... That's like the reason he brings stuff up, and he's like, "Oh well, if your religion's so perfect, and like, uh, if yours is perfect, then how come like different religions, like uh, Jews and stuff, got certain sections of it right? How do you know that they, uh, they're right and you're not?" Mm -hmm. and it's kind of like that mentality. Like, there's similarities, so like, why can't they both be right? Yeah, don't, don't cast your pearls before swine. You know, um, you need to apologetic for that. But the problem is. You know, in his case, he's a mocker. God's going to have to open his heart and mind, or nothing's going to happen. Well, but. Because he, I know he does that kind of stuff to like yeah. mess with me. But I kind of, I every time it happens to me, I kind of seize an opportunity. Because honestly, I don't even like him all that much. But I, sometimes I do. I find myself praying for this guy because the way he is, it's mm -hmm. like like everything in the day. Sometimes I get him rides home from work and stuff. Is when we talk about stuff. And it's and it's sometimes I kind of I see like God even even if He is not going to see it it's I like I can at least try to plant that seed and God will water it later right kind of thing. because sometimes there's things it's like there's no way that just like just like kind of things me thinking about something all day like oh I wonder what happened if someone got in this conversation and all of a sudden I'm in that same conversation I'm on the ride home from work right and it's like well if I have this opportunity I'm going to take it even if I don't know if I'm going to take it from it I'm going to take that opportunity. Just be kind, be patient, you know, give him the best answer you can and let God work on his heart. You know. But the Pharisees did have a few things right. I mean, they, they got this right. They also believed in the immortality of the soul and the resurrection of the body. They believed that they're going to rise again. They believed that you live forever. They believed in angels and demons. You know, they believed that there were angelic beings around. Um, how did they know that? Well, they accused Christ of being what? Prince of demons. Yeah. They also believe the written and oral law consisting of 613 commandments. What are they trying to do? Well, if, if sin is over here, I'm going to create a law that doesn't even let me get close to the edge. And then I'm going to treat that as authoritative, as much authoritative as the law itself. Okay, you understand what they did? The law says you're, you won't go over 55 miles an hour. So what did they do? They created a law that said you cannot go 40, over 45 miles an hour. And if you went over 45 miles an hour, they would jump on you for sinning. Is that, was that sin? Well, no, that was their definition of it. But what they tried to do is they say, well, 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 we'll create a higher standard so that you don't even get close to the possibility of breaking the law. So they created 613 of these. Most of them have to do with the Sabbath. Um, you could only walk so far on a Sabbath. You couldn't go too far. You couldn't cook. You couldn't do this. You, when Christ went through the grain fields taking the corn, they were accusing him of working. He was threshing. No, he wasn't. He was eating. Um, they had missed that. I mean, you could look at that from one respect and say, well, you know, maybe that would be imprudent, you know? You know, you don't want to sin, so you try to stay as far away from it as you can. 
But the failure comes when you make that standard the sin. Right. You got it. It's superior to the that's other. that's what that's the problem. That that they that's right. Everybody else when they're living that standard, and nobody else is measuring up to that standard, and we have that in our churches today. Oh, you're going to deal with that. I mean, you're going to have people in your church that say it is a sin to drink a drop of alcohol. The Bible doesn't forbid that. It says don't be drunk. That's the that's the sin. But what we do is we create a law, a little stronger. So that we don't get, you know, the idea is, well, if I don't drink at all, I won't get drunk. Therefore, the sin is to drink at all. The Bible doesn't say that. But we create it. And then we t make people feel that that is the sin. Look. And you know the kicker is? If they break that rule thinking it is a sin, and they intentionally break it, then to them it is a sin. It is a sin. That's the real kicker. Yeah. So, what do you, how do I deal with this? Well... Yeah, so what I, the way I deal with this is, you know, I have certain convictions in my life. I've never drank a drop of alcohol. I've never drank. Never smoked a cigarette or drank alcohol or anything like that. Um, not because having a cigar is a sin. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin, right? Does it say it's a sin to have a cigar? There are people smoking at the Men's Booty Cooperative Yeah. The Bible doesn't prohibit that. It may not be bright to do, but it doesn't prohibit it. All right? Um, but if you have a conviction about that, well, then don't smoke. But don't take your conviction and force it on somebody else, thinking that somehow I'm better than them because I have this conviction and they don't have this conviction. See, that's what Christ really dealt with with the Pharisees. He said, you guys have convictions, but... You've got the wrong dial on that. That's not sin. Did Christ ever violate the Sabbath? Yeah. I mean, not when well, well, yes, no. Maybe that's one of the yoke questions. That's yoke. That's the yoke question. Yes, if you mean by that he violated their, their <laughs> view of the Sabbath, yes. No, if by that you mean he violated the law of God. He couldn't violate the law of God. He couldn't. He's God. He's God. And he said, the man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. You guys got it all twisted out. You got it all twisted around. And see, it goes back to relationship. It goes back to that, that connection to God. But what had happened to the Pharisees is they created these 613 commandments that to them became the sin. For example, when the disciples ate without washing their hands, what did the Pharisees do? Yeah, you're, you're not allowed to do that. Well, where does it say that in the Old Testament? Well, it doesn't, but see, the Pharisees believe, and they taught, that one of the ways that demons get into you is through your hands. So you had to ritually cleanse your hands to wash off any demons that might be clinging to your hands. And they had a certain way in which you had to wash your hands, you lift it up, and then you went down, let the water drip off to get rid of the demons before you ate because you didn't want to eat a demon accidentally. Where'd that come from? Yeah. It doesn't come from anywhere. You know? Uh, but see, they created this stuff. And they made laws that weren't laws at all. And that's why Christ said, you know, you've invalidated the real law of God by making a counter law to obviate the real law of God. You violate it with your traditions. You've missed the point. 
Um, but that's the Pharisees. And this is the group that Christ really had the most problem with. And we're going to see that as we work through the life of Christ. You have another group of guys called the Sadducees. Um, they were the aristocracy. They were the wealthy guys. They were the ones that ran the temple. Uh, why did that make them wealthy? Taxes. No, not taxes. They had a sell it out to the front and yeah. sell the cooked meat out the back. They could do that. Uh, the other thing is, you know, if you were a Jew and you came in from Rome and you wanted to offer a sacrifice, where would you get your sacrifice? Well, you couldn't bring it with you, right? And if you did, what could they do? They'd say, well, that's not good enough. You're going to have to buy one at, yeah. at the temple. And they had temple-sanctioned sacrifices at a premium price that you could buy to sacrifice in the temple. Also, the Mosaic Law said that you need to give half a shekel of silver. Well, if you had Roman drachmas, that wouldn't work. So what did you have to do? Had to get exchange plus 15% handling fee. Is that the money changers? Money changers. And uh, the other thing is they were selling turtle doves. Now, why would that be a bad thing? Well, that was for the poor folks that couldn't afford a, a major sacrifice. What were they doing? What were these, Pharise what were these guys doing? Praying on the people. They were praying on the people. And they're praying on the poor people. And that's when Christ went in there, he got incensed that they were actually forcing poor people to buy turtle doves at exorbitant rates to sacrifice. By the way, when Christ was circumcised, what did Mary and Joseph offer? Turtle doves. What does that tell you about them? They weren't very wealthy. But they, they were fleecing the public. They were just taking advantage of people. And that made Christ extremely angry. Caiaphas and Annas, which were the two guys in charge, were the most wealthy of all the Jews. They were the high priests, and they, they bought the high priesthood basically by bribing Rome. That's how they were named to be high priests. They would bribe Rome. Um, they were the, you want to call it the, the I don't want to call them, they, they only accepted the first five books of Moses. So if it was not in there, they didn't believe it. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They did not believe in resurrection. Yeah, that's why they're called sad, you see. They did not believe in the immortality of the soul. They did not believe in angels and demons. Um, they rejected all the oral law. They rejected all the Old Testament that was not the first five books of Moses. So live it up now because soon you'll be dead. Yeah. Well, if you don't believe in immortality of the soul, why would you bother with your sacrifices? Making money. Don't want to kill the golden goose. Cash cow. But the people are are making the sacrifices with the hope of immortality. Well, they're going to let them in on that. Oh, okay. No. Think think about the liberal think about the liberals today who deny the you know sort the, of like the law applies to you and me but doesn't to the yeah. guys that go to Washington D.C. Yeah. And the big shots in the you know sports arenas and stuff like that the law don't apply to them, just us. Yeah. But see the thing is they made a lot of money. 
they were very wealthy. They, they, they were very comfortable. And what this really explains is when, it was when Christ started to step on their toes by overthrowing the money changers and throwing them out of the temple, what was he hitting him? Where was he hitting him? Right where it hurt. Right in the wallet. <laughs> and remember what the Pharisee, what the, what, I think it was Caiaphas said, it's better that one man die for the nation than the Romans come and take away our place in our nation. What are they saying? We don't want Rome to come in here and upset the apple cart because we've got it pretty good under Rome. All right, these Sadducees were very pro-Roman because Rome had given them a sense of stability, of peace, and they made they were made very wealthy under Roman rule. The last thing they wanted was Rome to come in and take over. See, now this time for the Savior, and then when he came, they didn't want him. Well, they they weren't looking for the Messiah. You know, they weren't looking for that. That's the Pharisees. The Pharisees were looking for the Messiah. But the Messiah they wanted was a Messiah of their own making. Not the Messiah of the Old Testament. Um, what about the Essenes? Well, we talked about them earlier. They were an ascetic group. Um, their idea was Judaism is corrupt. The temple is corrupt. We're going to withdraw. They were sort of like a Pharisee, but they took it further in saying, I mean, the Pharisees worked within the system, basically. The Essenes said, bag the system. It's corrupt. We're leaving. We're going to go off and do our own thing. So they are the ones that went down to the Dead Sea, and they're the ones that had that community down there. So would they not even participate in the, uh, uh, the uh, sacrifices? No, they wouldn't. So then actually they, they were bad Jews. Well, they had a very different view. Their view was the, the, the temple was an apostasy. And if you read some of the writings down at the Dead Sea that they had, they had a very messianic view that the Messiah was going to come and destroy all the false worship and establish true worship. And they wanted to be on his side when he came back. They're tantamount to the Christians you read about today, you know, that withdraw from a society and go up into a mountain and wait for the Lord to come back. That's basically where these guys were. Um, it was a very closed community. It was hard to get in. Um, but once you got into the community, you know, you were part of the group. Um, by the way, the last act was baptism. They would baptize you to become a full member of the Essene community. And uh, there's a lot of whackery out there which wants to make Christ and John the Baptist, like splinter Essenes. You know, they, they want to, in fact, I was watching a special on the History Channel, which really is a good place to go and find out about Jesus, I know. But, but their idea there was that Jesus was really an Essene. He took the Essene theology and basically became who he was. But it started out as an Essene. Was that thing that was on like on Sunday? Yeah, it was something. Yeah, and it was like the plot against Jesus or something. Well, it wasn't that. It was another special. They but had like a whole special last Sunday, like mm -hmm. the plot against Jesus and Jesus' fear and like a bunch of that stuff. Yeah, there were all kinds of wackery out there. Um, the Essenes were the group that copied and preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. I mean, we have them credit for that. And uh, But they're very ascetic. They're very monastic, very closed. 
um, group of people. And their idea was, we're going to go down on our compound and wait for the Messiah to come and destroy the world and establish true rule. That's what they were looking for. Um, the Zealots were the opposite of the Essenes. Their idea was, let's get rid of Rome. Let's, they, were the, they were the first century terrorists. They were the first century suicide bombers. Um, what they wanted to do was, what they would do is they would target and assassinate Roman sympathizers. And one of the ways they did, they were Sakari, so they would like sneak through a crowd and take a knife and stab someone and kill them um, who was sympathizing with Rome. Simon was one of, who was one of Christ's disciples called the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. He became a Christian. He became a follower of Christ. But these guys were very much into the violent overthrow of Rome. And so they would do anything they could to stir the pot and to try and get Rome out of there. And if, you, if they thought that you were collaborating with Rome in any way, they would possibly target you and try to assassinate you. Herodians, who's that? Well, they were Jews that supported the Herods. All right? um, the Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees. The Sadducees hated the Pharisees. All the groups hated each other. The only time they agreed on anything was when? Yeah, let's get rid of Christ, Matthew 22. Well, you have. The Pharisees try to trip him up. The Sadducees try to trip him up. The Herodians try to trip him up. And he outsmarts all of them. Let's just go a few more minutes. We're almost done here. Some of the institutions that cropped up during the time period, we talked about a little bit, the synagogue. Um, really, the New Testament church is patterned after the synagogue to a large extent. You had a board of elders that ran the synagogue. Um, remember the man in the Gospels whose daughter was dying? He was a ruler of the synagogue. He was a leader of the synagogue. He, he was not the one who actually ran it, but he was like the layperson that... that took care of the synagogue. These are very important places. And one of the importance of them is when Paul began his missionary journeys, where did he first go? The synagogue. To start there. Um, many think it began during the Babylonian captivity is when these started. All right. But it was a very important place. Um, in the Christ day, the Jews had a, they had a certain modicum of self-rule under Rome. I mean, they could do certain things. Um, they could not execute anybody without Rome's blessing, all right? But they did have their own little law courts that they could use to settle certain matters. Um, so in Jesus' day, it was a, a place where you would go learn. For example, the, the young men that wanted to learn to be a Pharisee would go down to the synagogue to learn the law, to hear the law read. It became sort of like a little court in the town. Um, but it was a very important place. How about the Sanhedrin? We read about that. This was the ruling body in, Ju Ju in Judaism. It consisted of 70 men. And the high priest was 71. So he was the tiebreaker. Think of like our, our Senate. And there were 70 of these guys. And who are some of the prominent people, members of the Sanhedrin that we know of? Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one. 
I think there's a couple other ones. Paul might have been a member of the Sanhedrin. All right. He would have been an he would have been a, a member. This was the ruling body. This this was the body that basically managed Jewish affairs, and they had a lot of power. Again, they couldn't execute anyone, but they had a tremendous amount of authority over the Jewish people. They were the religious law court, sort of the supreme court of Israel to a large extent. Now they could turn people over to Rome for execution, but they couldn't execute anyone themselves. All executions were done by Roman. Right. Rome would not allow... Now, the, uh, obviating... Um, you know, obviating the, um, the mobs, like Stephen, that was not sanctioned by Rome. That was mobs. All right. But Rome were the ones that said, we reserve the right of capital punishment. Now, you can judge somebody and turn them over to us, and if we agree with the judgment, we will execute them ourselves. But you are not allowed to do that. They reserve that right. How about the scribes and lawyers? They were a class of Pharisee that was the official interpreters of the law. Think of them as the upper crust of the legal profession. Um, and also, one of their jobs was to produce copies of the Torah. They would, that's what they would do. Um, their job was to stand all day long and copy the law of God. So they knew the law. I mean, they were experts in the law. So that's a little bit of the background that gives you an understanding of what's going on when the New Testament begins and Christ comes on the scene. Thank you for listening to today's study in the Gospel of John. Part two of this class can be heard in the next podcast in this series. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.